Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Nobody understood that I had changed and... They were either very patronising or more normally they avoided me because they didn't know what to say to me. You need to get your disabled loved ones out there into society so that the society itself starts to change and become less prejudiced. Don't make people feel like they're a victim because, you know, often those people who've had strokes, they don't feel like a victim. Okay, I might not have the longest life, but I think I'm going to have a damn full one and that's all that matters to me. Hello and welcome to On A Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, And me, Julia Ajayi. This is the podcast which delves into brain injury and its impact on all involved. We are so excited to bring you this week's podcast with a guest episode. And today we're speaking to Dr. Satinda Sangera. Satinda's a GP who had a brain injury when she was just 20 whilst studying medicine. Despite the odds, she completed her studies and she's not let her brain injury stop her doing what she wants and living a very fulfilled life. This lady is a true inspiration. She certainly is. And Satinda talks to us about the prejudices she experienced, the perception of people with a brain injury in society and how she and other brain injury survivors want to be treated. So, let's get into the episode. It's a juicy one, but well worth taking time out to listen. It's absolutely wonderful to have you, Satinda. Thank you. Nice um, to be here. Lovely to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, please talk us through your backstory. Thank you for inviting me and for your very warm welcome. My name is Satinda. I'm 55 years old. I am a GP. I'm also a mother of two grown sons and uh, we live and run a small holding uh, with my husband and various animals. And I had my stroke when I was 20 years old. I was a second year medical student training in Cardiff. Prior to my stroke, I was an absolute tomboy, still am. I was very engaged in sports. Sports was my life, uh, going out, clubbing, dancing through the night. I loved so I was very much a physically active person and I happened to study medicine on the side of all that. I had no pre-existing health conditions um, so it was a complete uh, unexpected event. I hadn't even ever taken a day off sick in my life before. I was in what you would call rude good health. One day I was actually preparing for a, would you believe, a test on brain dissection. I could feel the whole of my right side of my arm go very numb. And I thought, oh, that's a hell of a 
bad pins and needles you've got there. And the next thing, it went through my leg. The whole of my right side went numb. I, when you have symptoms of stroke, it isn't expected and therefore recognised. And sadly, that results in delayed response to, to treatment, which could be life-saving and could also reduce the chance of lifelong disability as well. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done on this. I'm sure some of you out there will know personal or experience of others who were told that, you know, it was presumed they'd had too much to drink, this sort of thing. And it's disgusting, really, when you think about what those, what poor people are going through at the time. I eventually ended up at the university hospital and many, many hours later, it was recognised that I had indeed had a, a stroke and uh, that it was a very dense, what you call dense completed stroke. So at the time they thought it might be my left middle cerebral artery, which had completely blocked and uh, it resulted in a sort of massive haemorrhage, which um, caused, um, uh, I saw a scan actually only about five years ago for the first time, which showed that two thirds of the left hemisphere of my brain is just scar tissue. And actually that's the first time I thought, oh, you've actually done quite well considering. Up until that point, I've always been a very harsh critic of myself, but I, I sort of sat back and thought, blimey, that's actually quite something. You've got like one half of one brain and a little remnant of bit of the other brain and you've sort of like led a pretty full life. And that sort of, I thought, crikey, you need to get out there and tell people who've had strokes that just, you'll be fine, just get on with it. And But it was a shock and... Um, yeah, it, I, I must admit, um, it was a, a, a tough time afterwards. Um, but tough not in the ways you might expect. It was tough because, um, A, I was in hospital for four months. Um, and when I eventually came round, uh, the news I was given was very dramatic and very negative and very pessimistic. And it was the last thing a 20-year-old girl with a life in front of her wanted to hear. My plans had been to work overseas to save the world, to become a surgeon, you know, to travel, to, um, you know, to have a very full life. And this thing that apparently had happened to me wasn't going to get in my way. And so I decided then and there that everything people told me that I didn't like was just background noise and I was going to ignore it. And it was very frustrating for the physios and the doctors because I was an extremely impossible patient. But I would do things like I would sneak out the ward in the middle of the night when they, when they were short-staffed and I would do my own extra physio around the, the park behind the hospital because I thought the physio they were giving me was a bit poxy, you know, considering I did sort of athletic training. I was a middle distance running runner for my county. And I thought, well, this isn't like proper, you know, I, I'm not even in pain at the end of this. I don't even feel like I've broken out in a sweat. So I would like um, get some friends to to act as decoys and sneak out the ward with their assistants and try and sort of limp round the park until I basically fell down. And somebody picked me up and piggybacked me back in. And of course, the, they all found out in the hospital and, and I got some ticking off and told by the physios that I need to be careful, I'll make my spasticity worse. And all I kept thinking was, yeah, and maybe it will make me worse, but it's making me feel a lot better. And in my mind, that's all that mattered to me as a young person, and I think at any age really, is you just want to feel better. You want to feel normal. And going around the park until I collapsed just made me feel more normal. 
just getting out in the fresh air, not being in a clinical setting. Uh, it was a really depressing place to spend four months, so as much as I could, I wanted to get out of there. Um, I love I love that mental attitude that you had right from the outset that you wanted to rewrite what the medical profession were telling you. Mm. I think you still have that now as I well, do. don't you? I do, yeah, and I've had various uh, chronic health problems since, and I've been told that I need to not do this and I think it's the negative language I've always been told not to do stuff I'm not saying that that makes me right all the time because I I have ended up doing things against medical advice until I've literally dropped and that's how I ended up and to take your health retirement which I've still returned which I've since returned from but on reflection there were times when you know my GP would say I'd be very disappointed if you returned to work after you admitted with you know, cardiac chest pain and severe tachycardias and erratically high blood pressure. And um, and I'd say, I'll be fine, you know, and, and um, but then I would be readmitted. And, you know, in retrospect, yes, I probably wasn't. I don't, I suppose I don't have a dimmer spooch. That's my problem. But I don't apologise for that. It's got me where I am. And I'm still here, you know, I'm still standing. And, OK, I might not have the longest life, but I think I'm going to have a damn full one. And that's all that matters to me. Absolutely. So... You mentioned some of your friends um, mm. that helped you out, sneak out in, the, in an evening in hospital. How were your friends after you had your stroke? Obviously, you're, you know, mm. they're young, they're at university. How yeah. were their perceptions of you? Oh, rubbish, to be frank. Um, then I say these were friends. These were people I knew. Um, to be honest, it was I think it was mostly lads who just wanted the fun of being able to sneak me out of hospital and be anti-establishment rather than anything. But no, I lost all my friends um, and I went back one year. But I, when I say I lost my friends, it's the fact that uh, nobody understood that I had changed and they were either very patronising or more normally they avoided me because they didn't know what to say to me. That was quite hard. And then there were odd comments also made, which had a very profound effect. And all I would say to anybody out there is don't underestimate the throwaway comments you make to somebody after they've had any life-threatening illness because they're, they're like a sponge at that time. They're looking for affirmation that they're, they're still part of society and that they still matter. And they care deeply about the things you say to them. And so to be told oh, Satinda, you can't dance like you used to, you're not any fun anymore, you don't go out anymore, you know. These things really hit hard because nobody understood that there was a lot, just to get myself up in the morning, washed and dressed, I had to teach myself to speak again because I had um, expressive dysphagia. As you can see, I've kind of overcome that. Um, I had no movement in my hand, my thumb and my fingers, the first little flicker of movement took four months before, so it was what you call a very delayed response, very dense response. My leg was very slow to recover. I still have no active movement below my knee. So for me, everything was a lot more difficult. I had the, the typical brain fog you have, where it was slower to process things. I also was dominantly right-handed and I had to learn to write my left hand. It was only because of one neurologist that I actually returned to medicine at all 
the, the medical board actually kicked me out. Say when I came back, I didn't really feel that I had the, the, the backup of my supposed friends. And I went to a 30 years reunion uh, at Cardiff and it was very interesting because it was in my original year that I joined and I had several doctors you know, consult now consultants, GPs, medical directors, who came up to me and to my face apologised and said, Satinda, they said, you know, we realise now that we were pretty crap with you, weren't we, at the time? We were, we showed no empathy and understanding at all. And they said, and it's because they've since had experiences, whether with themselves or through family, through children, and they have suddenly been able to step into the shoes of others. Um... And it made me a bit sad, actually, because these are people who are going on to be doctors. And I thought, you know, you are the least compassionate people I know. <laughs> You're supposed to be entering a profession that's supposed to be compassionate. But medics are, are supposed to be young, healthy, strong and beautiful, not disabled. So I, I jarred in that setting, to be honest. I didn't fit in at all, whether with my peers or with the, the lecturers and, and so forth. So... Yeah, it was a challenging time, we can say. But you had a big champion who made sure that you continued your studies. Yes, I did. Um, I didn't realise this until many years later when I was talking to his medical secretary about a patient I was looking after as a, uh, as a, a student. And, and she said, did you know that Professor Comston uh, was the only person who fought against the decisions being made by the medical board to remove you from uh, from returning to practice and and I was very surprised and and honored to hear that um, but yes he'd basically laid his reputation on the line and said it would be on his head if there were any issues but he said he'd he said to them that he saw something in me that he uh, he saw that there was something that he couldn't quite put his finger on and that obviously I would have to do a series of tests, both cognitive and physical, before he could say, yes, I could return to medicine, but that I should be given the opportunity to try. And that was valuable because it gave me something to do. It was a, a harsh time, but I was very determined because I had a goal. If I met certain goals, I would be able to return to medicine. And I remember, um, but I didn't, well, I didn't remember this. My dad reminded me that I actually asked somebody to get Gray's Anatomy textbook and stick it on my bedside table when I was in hospital. And I tried to read through that, though, with great difficulty, I admit. And so from the outset, I had something to work towards. I had a purpose in my life. And that, I think, probably drove me to push myself harder than I otherwise would have, including like learning to write my left hand and learning to talk properly and increasing my stamina etc. You have mentioned then about your dad but also mm. how important your parents have been to you. Yes. Do you want to tell us about their role in in yeah. your recovery and your journey? Yes please yeah I think uh, well th they were the opposite of cotton woolers they were like I think they were a little bit in denial as well they didn't want to admit to themselves my dad freely had said that to me recently that it's hard for him to to sort of re recognise that I'm disabled. I think because in his opinion, I'm not. I'm still his girl who is active, pushed back boundaries, isn't very conventional. Part of it is that they didn't want 
to acknowledge there was anything wrong with me, but partly is because they were determined that I would still, at the centre of everything, I was still Satinda. And that's what I say to my clients, you know, stroke is just something you have, it isn't who you become. You know, you, you're still your personality. My Both my parents saw that that mattered to me and therefore it mattered to them. I mean, they also admit that they have had some very, very, very scary moments in their lives, heart-stopping moments, like the first time I went with my physio to London to the Bobar Centre when I was still an inpatient and I insisted with the physio that I was going to travel onwards on my own to Luton where my parents lived on the train and negotiate the underground as well and she said you can't do that you have no core stability you'll fall over and I said oh, I'll be all right and I managed to convince I basically said I'm just doing it whether you like it or not and um, my dad heard of this when I turned up at I rang him from Luton train station saying dad I'm here can you pick me up it was a terrifying experience I don't know how I managed those escalators and people were very rude because they thought why is she walking so slowly why can't she let go of the escalator handrail because my hands were frozen um, it was a struggle on the underground with the wibbly wobbly trains but I got there um, but my dad didn't react and challenge me and say, oh gosh, why you shouldn't have done that. He just sort of said, nice to see you, took my bag and we went home. And uh, I, there was another time when I was um, back home living with them and I was determined I was going to get back on my bike. I used to love my cycle. I used to bike everywhere, dual carriageways all around Sakadu city centre. And I was going to get back on my bike and I tried and I was cycling on the road and I fell, I did that a couple of times, and each time I fell on my stroke side because you have no writing response on your stroke side, so your arm doesn't automatically go out to protect you, it does the opposite, it goes in, and so you, your, your full side of your body takes the full force of the tarmac. And um, I remember returning home and not saying anything to my parents, just limping up the stairs, and my mum just stood behind me at the bottom of the stairs saying, are you all right? And I said, yeah. And I just carried on up the stairs and she said, okay, let me know if you need anything. And that was it. They, I knew they were there for me, but they didn't fuss over me. I mean, sometimes they could have been a little bit more sensitive. Like they always had the blooming toilet roll holder on the right hand side. They've ne Even to this day, they've never moved it. And I can tell you in the early days, it was a real pain <laughs> trying to, with my very floppy right side, trying to like reach around to get to the toilet holder. But in a way, I was also proud that they didn't think, oh yes, we need to adapt this, we need to adapt that. They didn't adapt anything for me at all. You know, it was really quite, nothing back, it was quite funny, you know, but you know, if I was struggling with a fork to chop up my meat, they didn't say, oh, can we chop that for you? If I asked them to, they would, but they never sort of like jumped in and took over. And when I told them, uh, only two years after I returned to my medical course, three years, less than three years after my stroke, that I was going off to Malawi on my own and that I was going to spend part of the time living in a tent. I mean, they should have collapsed on the floor. Apparently, internally, they were collapsed on the floor in abject worry. But they just said, are you sure? And I said, yeah. I said, I was actually going to go to Papua New Guinea on my own, but apparently we're not allowed because the previous year a med student had got shot by an arrow and so we're not allowed to go there. So I'm going to Malawi, which is far safer, mum and dad. So, and they, I think, you know, and then I went to New Zealand on my own. I used to like drive around and sleep in the back of an old van. And, and, and I think they've just allowed me to be, you know, um, 
and uh, you know I'm not saying they've always approved I mean a lot of the times they haven't but you know they know this is who I am and fundamentally that's what they raised me for you know to to become myself not to to sort of like um, follow in anybody else's footsteps so incredibly important their role in allowing you to do that oh hugely important you know and in a way my my husband I'm married for the second time my current husband has learned to do that as well he's learned to accept there's a lot of things I do that Mike doesn't approve of and that he gets very scared about I've watched him sat on we sail and I've watched him on the sailboat um, when I go off for a swim and I used to have I don't do it anymore um, because I get his point now uh, about speedboats and things but I used to just swim off into the distance into the middle of the ocean um, without a care in the world until and 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 he would sort of be very worried about me for many reasons and even now if I go into the water and it's choppy and the waves are high I see he'll just you know nonchalant he'll just be very sort of subtly move himself around the boat with his binoculars because sometimes I can see when I look back over my shoulders I think yeah he's silently worried about me but he's not saying don't go in the water you know on your own when it's choppy like this he's letting me do it but he's just mindfully keeping an eye out for me but he's never once said you shouldn't do that which i'm very proud of him for mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In your role as a GP, you must meet many people who've had brain injury mm. and also their carers, partners, yes. family. Yes. Yeah. So what would you say to uh, those people about how to achieve the best outcomes for the person who's had a brain injury? I think the hardest thing for a, ca- a carer or loved one, however you see yourself, is is not to feel like you have to be always rolling your sleeves up, rushing in and doing things. Sometimes it's as much about, you know, listening, observing, sitting back and allowing, which is very, very difficult. But it's also about reinforcing to the person that, you know, to remind that person that ultimately they are who they are. You're not sort of looking at them as a changed person but they're still the the husband the wife the sister the brother and not being too not being too nice to them if that makes sense you know don't don't sort of feel like you've got to be really nicey nicey to them because oh you know poor you don't don't make people feel like they're a victim because you know often those people who've had strokes they don't feel like a victim they feel lots of other things but that's one thing they don't feel and so don't sort of like um you know, don't feel like they need to be looked after and that they need to be treated with kid gloves, you know. It's a bit like, you know, your second baby. The first one, you treat them like glass. The second one, you just chuck them everywhere, don't you? you don't, it's a bit like that, you know. Just, you know, they're more resilient and robust than you think. People yeah, and also I, I think that it would create a slightly artificial relationship if uh, 
if I was nice to my husband all the time, um, because we would. weren't before, and we're yeah. <laughs> before his brain injury. It's not normal. When, no, yeah. I don't it's think so. It's not normal. So. And also, make a positive effort to hold their stroke hand or their, you know, even mm. if it means I'm mm. curling their fingers. You know, my first husband was recoiled by my stroke side and never touched it, never wanted to approach it and would make negative comments about it. But my current husband, he not only acknowledged it, but when we go out walking, I always would go around so that I would hold my left hand in his right hand. But if I happened to be on the other side, he wouldn't move around to the other side. He would take my, my stroke hand and he will uncurl my fingers and straighten them out into his until they fit without a you know a word like it's the most natural thing in the world and the message that sends that through to that person who's had the stroke is so powerful it's such a message of love and positivity and and, and also admiration i remember once mike read an article that i'd some something i'd done it must have been the sponsored swim i did after the stroke and he actually had tears in his eyes and he said, you know, he made such a positive comment about it all. And, you know, I know that, you know, you'll be thinking it all the time, but the person who's had a stroke doesn't know any of that. Because believe it or not, out in the world, they're getting a lot of negative attention. And that, regardless of the fact that they may have more positive attention, it's the negative attention that, that they remember. And so if you feel something, say it. If you feel proud of them, if you feel like crikey, you know, you've, you're so strong, you know, and almost like you had a challenge which you've overcome. Like if, like if they'd gone and done a triathlon, you think about how, you know, and how much admiration you would have for them if they'd, you know, climbed a mountain. It's like that, you know, it's no different, you know, taking those first steps there's a lot to think about going out for that first meal in public. It was years, for example, before I went back on the dance floor. Absolute years. It was over 20 years. And a friend of mine was trying to get me up. It was a Kaylee in Scotland, so not even a normal dance. You know what I mean, it was like ridiculous. And he was saying, get up to the tender, it'll be fine. I was like in tears. I said, I can't. I said, honestly, I can't. It's going to be so embarrassing. And he said, and then he just sat and he said, you know, you're you're fine i promise you and i got up and i swear it was so different to what i expected because i literally got picked up and thrown around by these big burly handsome scotsmen so it was actually very pleasant at the end of, but it was very different to what i expected mm -hmm. and nobody judged me and i had a lady who who at my the charity I run who had had a stroke and she used to do a lot of ballet dancing and once i built up their confidence i said look why what would you what do you like to do forget physio physio is really boring what do you actually like to do and she said i want to dance and i said well go back to your ballet class she said, i can't i said yes you can and she did go back to her ballet class yes she can do most graceful ballet with one side and not very graceful with the other side but that's fair enough but she feels good on, on in herself but more importantly it improved her self-esteem going back to a protective setting with people she knew that she then, a week later, went to her local pub with her husband, who was a very um, sort of dour bank manager and didn't really want to take his wife off out. And he admitted to me because he was embarrassed for her, especially when she eats, because he felt that 
she can't eat properly and dribbles sometimes and stuff. And he, he wasn't confident to take her out, but he was in the pub with her because they'd, I'd had some words with him about, you know, you must take her out, it's very important. And he, he was sat at the bar drinking and he heard clapping and somebody nudged him and said, they're clapping your wife. And he turned around and his wife was on the dance floor, was dancing to um, a jukebox and people in the pub were clapping her and I you know I he was talked to me about it. he was very emotional about it he said I never realized he said all these years I've been like ashamed and embarrassed of taking her out and I said you know for all the idiots out there who make those nasty comments there are a thousand more people who are truly full of admiration for people like that and just like it for the first wave of people of color who came into the UK or or people with other issues that make them stand out as being different have had to go through the difficulty of the prejudice of, of breaking challenging behaviors and what's the norm that's how I see people with disability and their and their loved ones that you need to get your disabled loved ones out there into society so the society itself starts to change and become less sort of uh, prejudiced about people like this and realize that you know you don't have to talk to us in very loud voices and slowly which is what i used to get all the time which was you know very very annoying <laughs> you know it's so true and and it's yeah and it's doing away with people's opinions and perceptions and isn't it and it's really just going out and being you and who cares what other people think yeah but they see the problem is that people who've had stroke do not want to re-engage with their their local social circuits. It's very common. I was struck when I was working as a GP. I was working with Weirdale for 20 years and I saw a lot of people after that had heart attacks, the cancer treatments, even multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease. We saw them on a regular basis, but I very rarely saw anybody after they had a stroke. It's like they disappeared. They just disappeared into the ether. I thought, where are they all? And it's because they just will not go out. You know, a lot of them are just will not go out. And yet those social connections at a community level, I think, are so, so important, important. in terms yeah. of building. Yeah. You know, that that to me is what rehab is. <clears throat> yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's actually, part of the recovery, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, it's everyday it's, purposeful activity. It it's making connections yeah. with people. It's building those relationships. For the entire family, though. Yes. Not just for that individual who's a stroke. It's as important for the kids. I mean, you know, I've... I, I know a chap, a patient, who he was a civil top, very high up civil servant, and he had uh, he was in his forties. Uh, his wife was in his her thirties. Um, they had two young children, uh, one sort of um, sort of about ten, the other in the early teens, and uh, he he even promised to take his birth daughter to a birthday party, and he didn't go because he just cannot get over the the feeling he has that having been in such an elevated position all his life from his perspective he's crashed to the floor and he's got such a sense of self-loathing and poor self-esteem and this is partly because society still has certain attachments prejudicial attachments to stroke um you know if i ask patients when i talk to them about high blood pressure and i say you know you need to be careful because of various conditions that can occur as a result like heart heart disease stroke um they will always say 
you know, if you, if you mention heart attack, they say, okay. If you say stroke, it's always the same reaction. Oh, I definitely don't want one of those. That, that would be terrible. You know, there's a, a real horror that people associate with stroke for some reason. I think it's because it's so, it's thought of being so finite and it's so physically evident. You know, it's not evident that somebody's had a heart attack. It's not always even evident somebody's had cancer. And in a way, nowadays with cancer, you know, people wear their, their headscarves with pride, you know. Well, you don't see anybody with a stroke walking down the street with pride, you know, because it doesn't, society still hasn't embraced them and doesn't look at people with stroke as, as being courageous, as fighting something and being and full of admiration for them. And also because I think society still doesn't understand that stroke happens in younger people. And it's increasingly happening in younger people. I mean, I didn't, say, tell anybody I had a stroke until I was in my 40s. Because before, when I was in my 20s, if I mentioned it, people recoiled in horror. And it would always be the same answer. But you're too young to have a stroke. So what's wrong with you, girl? You know, you must have not led a very good life to have had a stroke. And it was almost like it was my fault. But... So I changed it. I told people I'd had a brain hemorrhage, which actually now they think it was probably was. They think it was a, a massive carotid artery dissection, retrospectively. But whatever it was, I found the difference in response to saying that I'd had a brain hemorrhage to when I'd said I'd had a stroke was massive. Brain hemorrhage was like, oh, gosh, you've done so well. Stroke is like, oh, you're a bit young to have one of those, aren't you? It was it was so negative And um you know, this, these are the sort of things we have to change, which is why I'm so pleased to hear both Julie and Liz refer to it as brain injury, because that's what it is. It's not finite. It's not like you've been struck down, that's it. How can we go about, I guess, on a supporter level, to start changing those attitudes? And I know, obviously, we've got so far to go, but how can those that know people that have had a brain injury can start to change the perceptions on a day-to-day kind of basis? I think it fundamentally, you know, nobody likes to be noticed for the wrong reason or perceived to be noticed for the wrong reason, you know. Um, whatever age we are, we like to be accepted, you know, we like to be liked. And it's not easy to put yourself in situations where there is a potential that somebody might come up to you and not necessarily make a horrible comment, but just make an insensitive comment. But unfortunately, that is what you're going to have to do, you know. And also, you need to not always feel like you need to be watch guards over your partners and spouses 24-7. Yeah, things happen. Yes, okay, something might happen when you're out of the house. and But you can't, that is life, you know. What you should really focus on is having a quality of life. Not on feeling like you need to protect someone so that, you know, they can live forever. Because that doesn't, that there's no point living forever in a unit if that unit is utterly miserable. You know, so in my opinion, it means having to perhaps, both sides need to change. But probably, unfortunately, the carer needs to change more, <laughs> you know. I think you might be right there. But I, and I think that there's also opportunities to learn about some of the effects of brain injury in order to understand how better to communicate with someone, to give people yeah. time, to give people space, 
um, to be, have more one-to-one -one conversations, less background noise, you know, some really simple ways of increasing yeah. that connection again. And I think that there are lots of friends who want to stay friends and there are other people who find that really difficult. Hmm. Um, but I think that some of those practical ways of really connecting with someone who's had a brain injury, you know, and making the effort. I think it, it is an effort sometimes that people yeah. don't take. Um, but those who want to, I think, just can have such a, a profound uh, supportive effect, you yeah. know, for the person. And Absolutely. also, yeah. it, you know, I think it brings so much to, to me. I feel I've learned so much through the experience of... Mm -hmm supporting Hector and, and going through this journey side by side with him as well. You know, it's it's not only um, his journey, it's mine as well and the kids and the family. Yeah, and you do have to challenge your own prejudices as well, you know, because we all have them, whether we like to admit it or not. And that may be the first thing to do as well is be on it, have an honest conversation with yourself and say, you know, how do I really feel about this, you know, um, does it irritate me you know be honest with yourself you know does it irritate you that you have to feel like you have to you know you're in a hurry to go somewhere and your partner's trying to say something to you and you're just like oh you know spit it out <laughs> sort of thing you know sometimes you just have to be honest with yourself and not beat yourself up about it and say it's okay to oh I get irritated be... by that all the time <laughs> yeah, and it's okay not yeah. to be perfect all the time but it, yeah. you know we do live in a world you know where everything's so damn fast-paced and maybe one thing lockdown's taught us all is it's not a bad thing if we all start slowing down a bit and mm. connecting and giving each other a bit more time you know regardless of whether it's because they need it to get the words out or not you know to sort of like get to know people at the deeper level and also the other thing i'd say is that just because people were your friends before they don't have to be your friends afterwards you can change your friends you know you can you know sometimes it takes situations like this to make you realize who really is more like-minded because you don't have that tend to have those conversations do you unless there's a reason for them and sometimes you don't realize that actually you're not on the same page as another person until something happens to yourself or someone you love and they think, oh gosh, yeah, I, I realise that they actually have beliefs that don't that don't, they don't tie with my own. Yeah. And just move on. Honestly, I honestly say try not to surround yourself by toxic, negative people. Just just wrap yourself up in positive, happy people all the time. And give yourself new experiences. You know, the first time I think I realised that I was all right was when I went to Malawi for my student elective. What, 18 months after, my, just under two years after my stroke. And in Cardiff, you see, everybody, when they looked at me, they were comparing Satinda to all Satinda. Satinda used to run everywhere, who would like always be late for lectures, chain her bike up, run in and sit at the back of the class and talk too much. Some things don't change, as you see. They looked at me afterwards and they, they were comparing me. And that was the problem. It was that comparison that was killing me that was making me feel so inadequate all the time, whether it was verbal or non-verbal, it was there. You know, it was the, just the not being included, just even the position that people put their chairs in or the position they sit in mm. to where they would normally sit or whether they come and talk to you and how long they talk to you for, all these sort of things. You notice all of this. But when I went to Malawi, of course, nobody knew my history mm. and they just looked at oh, there's that girl, she's got a bit of a gammy hand and a gammy foot. Probably the most 
sort of negative, and I won't even call it a negative comment I received, was when I was trying to clamber up a ditch. You've got to remember, this is Malawi, where you've got these most beautiful African people who are so ridiculously fit and agile, and they're like gazelles out there, and they can like walk over any surface barefoot, and I'm sort of clambering up a ditch, and I was making a pig's ear of it. And they were all just having a good belly laugh about it. But I actually laughed with them because it was funny. But it wasn't insulting. And that's probably the only kind of semi-negative thing I got. But I don't even think that was negative. But I had such a positive experience out there. And it made me think, you know what? I've had a stroke, but it's me people are interested in. Not my stroke. Unless they remember me before and they have expectations of me to be a certain way. If they don't, then actually people will take you as you come. Yes, you know? and I, I think that's true for the whole family as well about expectations and the fact that, that we operate as a whole family slightly differently from how we used to. But I also love the way you talk about pushing those boundaries and getting out of your comfort zone. And I think that's so important for, for all of us to, to keep pushing those boundaries. And in, incredibly inspiring. And you have clearly have been leading an incredibly fulfilled life and mm. I think that is the most important like you said the most important thing people can strive for yeah I mean I remember years ago it must have been at least 15 years ago and a rheumatoid uh, I saw a rheumatologist saying to me you need to cut back on your gardening you've got severe osteoarthritis in your your um your good hand I thought well yeah no but I don't want to do that and and now I'm supposed to have a joint replacement I have sort of I, I've, I've had surgery on my shoulder, my, my shoulder, I'm, I'm waiting for more. And I know that there's all sorts of things I could do which will perhaps reduce the risk of me having arthritic changes in my good side. But, oh, I tell you, I'd be so bored. I would be so <laughs> bored in my life because I can't do the things I used to be able to do and love. You know, and you take my compromises away as well. Well, what's left? Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, what yeah. have I got left? You know, yeah. I don't want to exist. I'm sorry. As long as the health service is service is prepared to fix me, you know, and I I'm prepared to deal with the modicum of chronic pain, which I am. I'm happy just to carry on, just chucking my body around with me. But also, I think that that attitude you have to look for those new opportunities and to take them when they're there is something that we can all learn from and and keep being inspired by. It's just been fantastic to hear from you today Thank and you. to, to yeah. take all of your words of wisdom and experience in your role as a GP, as a stroke survivor, as a leader of a charity and a trustee of another, which I think is a whole other podcast. I think I was just going to say, like, <laughs> sitting day has been an absolute pleasure to oh, have been you on. Brilliant really talking has. to you guys. And you great. please come on again because I know there's still so much more that we have to get into and I know how much value this is going to give our listeners. So thank you so much. Well, I hope so. And, um, you know, I'm not right, I know, on, on a lot of things and I'm only talking through my own experience but it's it's more about principles of, of living and it applies whether you've had stroke or otherwise. You know, one thing I do know, having treated a lot of people with some pretty serious conditions over the years, is that it's not the condition that determines the end result, it's their attitude to their condition. Whether you have, and that also applies to able-bodied people with no health conditions as well, because, men, you know, your attitude of mind 
in my opinion, is more disabling than your than disability of the body. And I might have disability of the body, but as long as I don't have disability of my mind in terms of my attitude, I'm not too worried about myself. Thank totally you. Totally agree. Yeah, Thank you so, so much. What an incredible lady Satinda is. So much to digest from that episode. And one I think that anyone will benefit from listening to actually, not just brain injury survivors, their friends and family. So please do share this episode with others. We want to get it out to as many people as possible. And we'd love it if you wrote us a five-star review. Until next time, have a very good day. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. (laughs) To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.